Hello and welcome. I'm Andy Bush. I am joined by Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the brilliant Scarred for Life books, upon which this podcast series is based. Welcome to Scarred for Life, a deep dive into the dark, dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. Now, every week we will be speaking to a special guest who will be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of something that has literally scarred them for life. In this first episode, as a, as a way to get to know each other better, myself, Steve and Dave have each brought with us three things that have petrified us as kids. It's this kind of trauma that has brought us all together and you, our fantastic listeners, as well. Uh, it's a kind of scary as hell show and tell. And we want your uh, listeners' scars, and I'll tell you the way you can get in touch with those as well towards the end of this week's episode. So we've come armed with three things that have petrified us to get the the juices flowing with our listeners about what will be ahead in this podcast series. Uh, Dave, if I could ask you for your first scar, please. Yes, certainly. Well, I'm going to go with the, the genuinely, genuinely scary one to start with. I'm going to go with ventriloquist dummies. Right, now... <laughs> when i yeah it's horrific when when i was little uh at christmas when i was asleep on christmas eve uh my mum and dad in association with santa would creep into my room and place yeah. my toys and my annuals on my bed around my sleeping form so that when i woke up in the morning i would be surrounded by gifts now as oh, a parent uh, yeah that's nice it is but as a parent i now realize that's because it didn't yeah, but as a person, I now realise that's because they didn't want to be bothered with me in the morning. They just wanted me to, to do my own thing. Um, now, that's great. You wake up, there's your Beano annual, there's, there's your new action man. It's fantastic. Until the year I was given a ventriloquist dummy. Wow. If you've Yeah. If you've ever woken up next to the small a small, glassy-eyed ginger corpse, you <laughs> will not understand the horror i felt that morning it's it was called charlie uh it's oh. it's it's proper name is mr paul and chin it was uh it was made by a spanish company called uh, i think it's pronounced cremiel c-r-e-m-e-a-l um and it was this sort of wild herd wild ginger herd doll um and you it's about maybe three foot tall and you put your hand in the back and there'd be like a little thing where you could work its mouth its mouth would do this clack 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 sound did he? Did he? Was he? Was he suited and booted? Was he yes. in a medieval outfit? What was his yeah, outfit? Yeah. Well, yeah. He had like a sort of a, a tuxedo on, uh, like a little bow tie, bow tie, white shirt, black suit. Uh, there were two versions actually. There was the Charlie one, and there was one called Peter Patter. Uh, I, I didn't. I, did, I didn't have. I didn't have Peter Patter. He sounds dodgy. He, he does sound he, dodgy as hell. Yeah. He's on a well, list somewhere. Well, he, he he does look a bit like a neo-Nazi incel. I mean, if if you if if you if you look his image up online. If you look his image up online, your first thought will be, I wonder when Donald Trump started being a Butlin's red coat. Uh, he is a t- terrifying, terrifying looking dog. But m- mine mine was a tuxedo. Um, and as I say, he, he had a little control to make him go clack, clack over his mouth. And he had a little control uh, to work his eyes. His eyes would blink. The main problem with mine was that the rubber band that controlled his eye snapped. And so his eye was permanently half closed, and he appeared to have had a stroke. Oh God! <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I had this this stroke afflicted uh, doll with a clacking mouth, and it was absolutely terrifying. It's there's no way around it. It's an absolutely terrifying thing. And you know, we've got a, we've got a friend, and he had one, and he couldn't even have it in his bedroom. He had to have it put in the hall wow. at night. He he could not have it in his room because it looks 
possessed, basically. Um, it, it, remi- it reminds me of you remember the the Poltergeist movie. You remember there was a famous scene where there was the the, the, the clown doll sat on the end of a bed and there was like a thunder and lightning yeah. storm and it kind of moved. Yeah. I'm getting, getting vibes yeah. of that day yeah. when you it, describe him. Well, I mean, yeah, we, I mean, we all know that ventriloquist dummies in general are just evil. I mean, you've got, <laughs> you've got you know, uh, Lord Charles, who's a, as a, as a functioning alcoholic. You've got, um, <laughs> you've got, you've got Nucky Bear. Who, <laughs> that was a dodgy, yes, dodgy. Roger Corsi. Yeah, originally, yeah. originally Nucky Bear was was an act in uh, Men's Nightclub, and he was called Bollocks the Bear. Um, but. <laughs> but but he, you know, he 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 reinvents himself for, for yeah, he reinvents but, himself for children's TV. But if you look at him, he's got the wide-eyed stare. He's he's looked into the porno abyss, and the porno abyss has looked back into him. It's just he's <laughs> you, you you just well, know. Nucky, yeah, Nucky and Roger had a children's show, didn't they on they, ITV? They called Now for Nucky, the, the, which does sound like an instructional video. <laughs> this is the thing, but this is the thing about this era. The yeah. fact that a kid's show is called Now for Nucky yeah. is just mind-blowing. Without any you, irony. Yeah, no, uh, and, you know, it's just no Nucky Bear's got a cease and desist from Pornhub. You know, but, <laughs> but anyway, so, so I had this evil, evil ventriloquist dummy. Uh, and it was absolutely terrifying. And eventually he, he went to landfill. Uh, that landfill is now a very beautiful estate with, like, beautifully manicured lawns, beautiful new houses. Uh, with lovely. No, sound. I'm sorry, Dave. Dave, that mm. is the beginning to a horror film. It is. It's under there. My, my genuine yeah. fear. My genuine fear is that one day, one of those perfectly manicured lawns, a little hand will suddenly burst out of the grass, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and haunt, and it come back to wreak his revenge for for throwing in the tip in the first place. Wow, so that's fantastic. Well, Mr. So, Paul yes. Anchin, Mr. Paul Anchin is in. I remember when you were writing this, Dave. Mm. I became fascinated by Mr. Polanchin. If you do a Google search for Mr. Polanchin, you will see what Dave means. It's Chucky's got nothing on this guy. He's in the background of an episode of The Famous Five from the oh, 70s. Really? Mm. There's an episode where one of the mums bursts into a bedroom and Mr. Polanchin is perched atop one of the kids' wardrobes with this horrific Joker-like rictus <laughs> grin glaring down at her. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think Punch and Judy, I mean, a lot of this stuff goes back for me to, to Punch and Judy and that kind of slightly terrifying seaside entertainment of yesteryear. Uh, there's, there's definitely something terrifying in, in Punch and Judy, right? Even just the storylines are kind of weird, aren't they? Yes, it's a murder, isn't it? It's basically murders. Uh, domestic abuse. Yeah, yeah, domestic abuse, murder. Yeah, yeah it's awful. Absolutely, so, yeah. Ventriloquist Dummy starting us off there uh, with Dave for uh, one of the things that scarred him as a kid. Uh, Steve, let's dip into your past. What would you like to put forward as your first scar? With pleasure. My first scar is the scariest book I had ever encountered as a child. And it's still up there. It's the Usborne Book of Ghosts. Oh, wow. Now, I remember this from when I was a kid. Yeah, absolutely. 1977. It was part of the holy trinity of Osborne books, the world of the unknown. I owned a copy of the Osborne book of monsters, the nice. Osborne book of UFOs, because I've always been obsessed with the paranormal since I was about four. And they were falling apart because I leafed through them so much. Beautifully illustrated books, beautifully written, very educational in terms of um, folklore especially the Osborne Book of Monsters. They yeah. just, I was entranced. But 
Now, I think if a book has a spiritual home, it's the school library. Yes. And if our Twitter and Facebook followers are anything to go by, most people encountered the Osborne Book of Ghosts in the school library. The thing is, I, it was the third, I think, in the trilogy. I certainly hadn't seen it before. So when I saw a copy of the Osborne Book of Ghosts, aged about seven or eight, I leapt over there. Ghosts, it was part of the trilogy. I ripped it from the shelf, sat yeah. at a big table and placed it in front of me. And whereas the Monsters and UFO books just had me awestruck and like I say it was entranced I was fascinated by it I knew from the front cover that this was a wrongan from the word go <laughs> it's got one of the creepiest covers you will ever see it's the main image is a spectral monk with its yeah. arms together and a mournful look with the hood up advancing towards the viewer from a ruined abbey um there's four smaller images at the top going across saying this book will contain haunted houses, famous fakes, ghost hunting and strange happenings. Because I was going to say, I mean, I was big into ghosts when I was a kid. There was, it was always about Borley Rectory. Uh, Borley Rectory yeah. seems to be the most haunted house in Britain that was in all of these ghost books, wasn't it? Yeah. Strangely enough, it was a toss-up for my first choice between the Osborne Book of Ghosts or a magazine called Ghost Special Number 2, which is one of the most obscure magazines ever it was just one of those we've got space to fill in the summer holidays on the shelves we'll bung this out it was reprints from like um, Shiver and Shake and Monster Fun but there was text articles about famous hauntings the middle I'd say six pages were about Borley Rectory the most haunted house in Britain yeah it terrified me so much that for about the next 10 years mention of the name Borley Rectory sent a shiver through my spine (laughs) Borley Rectory, actually, I found out the only other day, it was actually uh, knocked down in 1939, but it was still a very oh. scary pile of bricks. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying yeah. rubble. Terrifying rubble. Yes. Yeah. Still well, reports of spectral happenings in the um, the rubble and all that kind yeah. of thing. I was going to say on, on the ghost thing, uh, Steve, what, what has happened to, to poltergeist? Because I remember in the 80s, there was a lot of poltergeist stuff going on, 70s. We couldn't move for poltergeist. I feel like in recent yeah. years, as is the is the the bottom falling out of the poltergeist type of market? Is it still going not on? Not at all. Not at all. It's all moved to TikTok, Andy. <laughs> That's all they're doing. Basically, now. <laughs> it's YouTube and TikTok. That's the big market for these ghost haunting videos. Absolute bollocks. It's the same thing again and again. It. I'm obsessed with it. When I'm writing and drawing, I bung YouTube on in the background and yeah. just chuck some paranormal crap on documentaries and top fives, and it's always some eighteen year old going round the flat with some banging at the yeah. front door and, the open it and there's no one there. I'm like, yeah, because you've overlaid the audio onto the video, mate. It's <laughs> appalling. But it's, it's, well, when I say it's still happening, it's still happening in YouTube and your TikTok videos and they're all appalling. It's, it's like all those videos, those TV shows, you got like ghost hunters and stuff like that where people screaming at night vision views of a moth. You know, it's- yeah. Yeah, and orbs. Yeah. It's all orbs, yeah. these, which is just yeah. fluff yeah. and dust, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Orb. So it's yeah. down to just an orb. Hmm. Yeah, bits of dust and little insects. I mean, <laughs> this is what it's become. I'm one of our ideas for a future book is the Scarred for Life book of the paranormal. Oh Not yeah, investigating the paranormal. We're fascinated by the way the paranormal has been portrayed in pop culture from the sixties onwards. It used to be very sedate and 
still sceptical, but very open-minded and slow and almost scientific. And we've reached the stage where it's just hectic green screen videos of people screaming at each other over nothing. Well, it was like, you know, M.R. James ghost stories and even like Lovecraft stuff was, you know, kind of took a long time to get going. There's a lot of kind of like filling your pipe up when you sat by the fire and telling long and settling in for the story. But like you say, now it's a little bit more kind of immediate, probably a bit of an indicator of where we are. That's great. Then the Osborne Book of Ghosts going on the list for scar scar number one for Steve. This is the thing. This is the great thing about the Osborne Book of Ghosts. It straddles that line between the scepticism and the credulity. The problem with it is, and I'll give you some examples of some of the stuff in it. It's written by a guy called Christopher Maynard, who's one of the big writers for Usborne. He'd write like 30, 40 books a year for them. It was just another project for him. Yeah. But this book, this job, which is all it was, really struck a chord with kids for decades. And the tone of the book throughout is ghosts are real, unequivocally real. They're out there. They might be in your house. It's something that comes with a house. It's like, it's like an estate agent shows you around a new flat. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm really sorry. It's got rising damp, dry rot. Oh, and there's a poltergeist. It's just something that comes with a house. And that tone petrified me yeah. because... There is no, there's a couple of stuff about, articles about kind of fakes and frauds. Fairies the and stuff at is, the end of the garden, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the tone is, ghosts are real. This is what a haunting involves. Yes, yeah, so that brings me to my point about why I was so scared of this book. My nan, my Irish nan, was the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter and claimed to be able to see beyond the veil. Oh, and my she, word. And, and, and she once said to little me, about six years old, she said, do you know what she said? There's always somebody standing at the top of your stairs. <sighs> Jesus. And I was like, That's so weird. F off, Nat. <laughs> <laughs> you know it might be a nana from Liverpool thing, because my, you know, my nana's from Norris Green in Liverpool, and she used to tell us regularly a story of seeing a little boy, a little Edwardian boy with gold curled hair, at the bottom of their stairs and uh, apparently must have been a boy that had died there years and years ago before but uh, nans i think as we as we go further into this podcast series we'll, we'll see that nans are quite complicit in terrifying <laughs> children aren't they oh yeah so you go through what is a ghost types of hauntings it's got a kind of a beautiful cutaway illustration beautifully illustrated book of a house and the types of phenomena that could happen during a haunting the knocks the images the spectral walking through walls I was becoming more and more petrified as a seven, eight-year-old in the school library, leafing through this book. Yeah. Until I get to one of the last pages. It's the most famous page in the book. It's called Mystery Photographs, and it's three black and white, like, legendary photographs of ghosts. One is um, an image of a spectral lady in mist form, kind of walking down the stairs, which was horrible to me as a kid one's the famous newbie church monk which is basically what looks like a 12 foot tall spectral monk with a cloth over its face with eye holes cut out standing in front of the altar at this church and i was ready to bolt at this point the last picture is quite mundane it just shows a guy sat at the wheel of his car with an old woman sat in the back seat now i read the paragraph accompanying it Basically, that woman is his mother-in-law, whose grave he and his wife had just visited 
I swear to God, God. I slammed the book shut. I threw it across the room and all eyes were on me. I had a visceral reaction to it. (laughs) The scariest book I'd ever seen in my life. It's something about, like, you know, like one final thing on the ghost thing. But I I think old-fashioned kind of chains and clanking and and monk ghosts don't scare me so much. But it's like your mother-in-law coming back to haunt you. That's pretty damn scary, that, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's maybe slightly more modern ghosts seem to have the bit of the edge on them. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve, that is fantastic. The Osborne Book of Ghosts for your scar. My first scar uh, uh, of this little sequence in this episode, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forward um, a, a children's TV character called Wordy from Look and Read, uh, if you guys remember that. Uh, so I don't know this is kind of oh, yeah. early 80s, I think late 70s. Uh, Wordy was, I don't kind of know what creature he was, but he was uh, an incredibly camp orange blob. Uh, he had letters stuck to his head. Uh, he had no body and legs, I remember. And then he... I think he was on like a space station orbiting the Earth. He had a male companion yeah. with him in a tracksuit. It looked like a paramilitary organization. And then I've learned since doing a bit of research that Wordy is a shortened version of Watchword. Who are you? Where did you spring from? I'm Mr. Watchword, the word watcher. Wordy for short. And I live in your typewriter. Which sounds like, um, I don't know what the watchword was or what that was about, but it sounds like a panic word wow. in, a, in a kind of specialist uh, nightclub it or does. something like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but he was, they were trying to teach you about writing and stuff. Because you remember as well in, in, in Look and Read, there was uh, Wordy's mate was like a disembodied floating pencil that used to light up at the end. And there's something yeah. about that kind of weird twilight zone of, of programs in that era, kids' programs, that teachers would record on VHS and then wheel out the one big telly that the school owned with a, a teak cover case that would have a, v, a VCR below it, and they would play you these things, and you'd sit there and watch them. But I just something about that era of kids' TV that, that has really kind of stayed with me. He was kind of a, a kind of terrifying character, Wordy. Do you know what I mean? What do you think, Steve? Yeah, it was very um, what they would now term hauntological, definitely. Yeah. It's got that eerie, cold, sparse... All of these characters, these floating characters, had that... The technique was colour separation overlay, or CSO, which what we would now call blue screen or green screen. Oh, wow. With the, remember they would have the fuzzy line yeah. all around it, and you knew that image, that character, wasn't in the room with the human because it, it's just clearly superimposed onto the screen. Made it feel like but a dream, though, was, slightly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, very dreamlike kind of vibe to it. There was Charlie on Look and Read's sister, program that was um, words and pictures again a floating kind of mascot that clearly wasn't there <laughs> dave what do, you, what, do you, what do you think i think well the thing about word is i always call him like the uh, the evil child of frank sidebottom and dusty bin he's just he's, he's a he's, he's supposed to look like a, a sort of the typewriter He's supposed to look like a oh, part yeah. of the typewriter, like the ball yeah. that stamps the letters onto the page. Um, I think the, the, one of the problems with Wordy is some of the shows he actually introduces, because I think three of those, there's one called Dark Towers. There's one called... Yes, Terrifying. Yeah, yeah. There's one called... It has a tall night ghost, and there's all sorts of ghosts in it, and uh, Christopher Biggins is a is a baddie in it, um, which is how terrifying it absolutely is. Uh, <laughs> you've got, you've got uh, Through the Dragon's Eye, with, frankly, an absolutely terrifying figure called Lord Charm, who's sort of got like a sort of a, a, a bone exoskeleton. He's got like a horse's skull face. He's absolutely terrifying. Oh my, this is awful. Lord Charn, C-H-A-R-N, if you want to Google him. And yeah. Very Gigoresque, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's just, yeah, absolutely horrible. And yeah, so these, all these, these shows. Oh, and of course, the, uh, the Boy from Space, I think, which is, 
people's a classic horror. Yes, the, the, the yeah, yeah, the yes. So I, I was going to say the, the the thing that kind of scared me uh, the most about Wordy is is um, these strange velvet hands, those kind of velvet gloved hands, yeah, almost like tights, denier tights he had over his hands. Yeah, it was weird. It was like kind of black spindly yeah. limbs that he had, and he was very because obviously he had no moving parts on his face, so it was almost like a mime. He would talk almost through his hands like Magnus Pike. Yes, There's too a much. Reference for the kids. Well, his hands had tights on. Do you think his hands were doing bank robberies when he wasn't on screen? <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go. I want to go back and, and look again at like because those words can't. The letters can't just be random on his head. Like maybe they they spell out like kill or fire or <laughs> red uh, rum. Do you remember? Yeah, red rum. That kind of thing. So there you go. There's, there's my uh, my first scar. Let's go very quickly to some listeners' scars. Uh, things that have scarred them uh, for life since they were kids. Uh, Dan M says, guys, the thing that scarred me for life was the air raid siren at the end of Dad's army. The credits at the end. No way. My I didn't understand this till I was an adult. We used to watch Dad's army as a family, and at the end of every episode, when the end title started, my mum would say, "Yeah, Steve, change the channel for us." <laughs> And I just thought, well, something on the other side. I didn't realise because she lived through the blitz. It was triggering her. Oh, wow. She okay. couldn't hear the siren. So that is, so that's the thing. It. So it, there's not the only person yeah. that's scarred for life by the end not of uh, Dad's Army. Yeah. Uh, you can keep those coming. We'd love to hear from you at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter. Right then, Dave, let's have your second scar, please, my friend. Right, OK. Well, my second one is most people are not going to think this is scary at all. I was absolutely terrified of Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. Come on. No. Every week, Skippy would come on and I would immediately start crying. And just recently, I'm just starting to wonder why my mum didn't just turn it off. Um, but I don't, know what it, I don't know what it was. It was something about Skippy. I mean, I think we all knew that he was secretly pushing Timmy down the well every week. I think we all knew that Skippy was behind everything that was going on. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favourite anecdotes about uh, Skippy is that Mark McManus, who, who played Taggart, he was in Skippy uh, when he was a young actor, and he described Skippy as oh. the, on, the only star of a TV show who was ever brought to the set in a sack. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So, and also, I also found out that uh, apparently they'd had a, a call of kangaroos in uh, Australia just before they made Skippy. And when you see Skippy's arms doing something... Uh, on screen, that's actually uh, novelty back scratches that they made from dead kangaroos. Um, so it's dead. It's dead. So if you see Skippy's arms doing stuff yeah. in Skippy the kangaroo, yeah. they're actually dead. Dead kangaroo yes. arms. They are. They are. They are. He's, they've murdered his cousins and they're using <laughs> their arms to show what Skippy can do. Yes, for some reason I don't know why Skippy the bush kangaroo is one of my greatest fears of my childhood. I'm assuming there was about twenty Skippy actors. They weren't using the same kangaroo. Lots of skippies. It would have died. What do you think? Yeah, do you, died or kind of... But do you think it was like so Hanny Hamstrung stuff like that? They were just <laughs> dropping dead every yeah. week and just replacing them? Absolutely. They're quite hard so though, aren't they? It's like, kangaroos are, are tough creatures. Have you seen those photos of kangaroos yeah. like flexing their muscles and everything as well? Could, skippy's probably yeah. quite vicious, I imagine. Yeah, I imagine. They're basically, they can't yeah. half kick. Yes, I imagine, you know, the the actors on you know on set with him but probably had to watch out. Like, like a behind a glass screen. So what was it? What was it? 
Was it just the, the general vibe about yeah, Skippy that I, upset I, you as a I child? Think, or? I think so. I think it's just got some sort of, I don't know, it's just something dark about it. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know whether it's the kind of washed out look of the film, whether it's, uh, I don't know, Lisa Goddard. Are you, are you, a lovely, are you okay with kangaroos lovely, in general? Dave, if you were to go to the zoo, would a kangaroo know, trigger you? Or do you not? know what? Many, many years later, I went to Walkabout, uh, an Australian-themed restaurant, and had a kangaroo steak, and I didn't like it, so Skippy got his final revenge on me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if, well, uh, what about the theme song? Surely that lovely. No, no, the very upbeat. That's that's, that's that was drowned no? out. That was drowned out by my tears. That was <laughs> that was Jesus. Yeah, that was the, that was the bit that got me every. I don't know. We've never watched it now. I think about it. Just, must have, must have, probably because only had three channels. Here, but, <laughs> if no, you two were were terrified of uh, Skippy the kangaroo, uh, drop us an email contact at scarredforlifebooks.com uh, Dave, thank you for that. Steve, let's have your second scar, please. My second scar, right, we're getting more and more intense with mine. My second scar is the title sequence to the second series of a kid's supernatural anthology show from the 70s called Shadows, which sounds super specific, and it is. Basically, Shadows ran from 1975 to 78, um, became quite obscure. It was a, like I say, it was one of those, it was kind of tales of the unexpected with a supernatural bent for children it'd be on in the afternoon but it really was a very scary show it yeah. had a hell of a, a a cast big actors would line up for it um writers like jb Priestley and faye weldon would write for it um pj hammond who created sapphire and steel so it wasn't messing around it was genuinely scary yeah every series had a slight change in format and theme um, the first one was just out and out supernatural scares, so it had a very sparse um, theme uh, title sequence where a candle is lit against a black background, very moody. Season three isn't quite as scary; it's more kind of magical realism and fantasy. So they went to town on this expensive, beautiful. It was more like Tales of the Unexpected title sequence. The second series, though, reduced me to tears. I had a meltdown the first time I saw it, age six. It's like a cross between Terry Gilliam's animations from Monty Python and yeah. the kind of urban animations from Yellow Submarine. So it's cut-out animations and very sparse backgrounds. It starts with a crow kind of going across this very dreamlike kind of uh, kind of spray-painted desert landscape. I'm not making this up. It morphs into kind of urban buildings which plonk themselves on the ground. Yeah. And the camera is spinning round these kind of cut-out, grainy, black-and-white images of urban, inner-city buildings. Then a moody-looking young girl fades into view, where it's kind of a Monty Python-style cut-out photo of a mm. girl. Then it fades. There's no theme music. It's just the sound of the wind oh my and word. this crow coring. Then this girl fades, and we see another image, which is basically her standing on this... Kind of again, Terry Gilliam's dreamlike blue sky, pink ground kind of thing. She's standing there with a skipping rope, stock still, but her shadow is skipping away, moving by itself. Oh my. Then she fades into the background, and we see a white rocking chair, which oh. is rocking backwards and forwards. Rocking chairs are terrifying English, anyway, aren't they? Absolutely. But the shadow, sitting in the shadow of the rocking chair, is an old man. Now, the reaction, I'd never seen anything so 
genuinely nightmarish. It's the kind of nightmare a six-year-old child would have. <laughs> so I didn't know how to deal with it. I'd seen monsters, I'd seen ghosts, but I'd never seen anything so surreal and nightmarish. I started crying and screaming and ran for the, the living room door, which was shut. Dad's at work, mum's in the kitchen making tea. I'm too short to reach the handle. So my mum thinks I've fallen into the fire or something. So she comes barreling into the room. It takes me about 10 minutes to calm down. And she has to explain, it's not real. It's just a TV show, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I, I remember a disconnected memory of a piece of string tied around the handle to the living room door for about a year so that I could reach up and grab it and open the living room door by myself. And it was only relatively recently I thought, of course, that was because of the meltdown I had, because of this title sequence. My dad came home. First thing he did was tie this rope, this, this string around the handle, so that I was never trapped in the Emergency room exit for that TV show. Yeah. It genuinely traumatised me. Epilogue is the internet ages upon us in the 2000s, and I stumble across random episodes of Shadows on one of those black DVD sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask no questions and you'll tell no lies. So I paid me money. This was before it was officially released. Get me black DVDs. And I still remember the trepidation I felt sitting down to watch them. And I have to say, watching that title sequence again, it ran a chill through me. Even as a 30-something, I thought, Jesus fucking Christ, I can see why. I shit me kex as a child. It's horrible. Go on YouTube, search for Shadows Series 2, opening titles 1976 wherever it was ITV it's incredible it's it, you, you put it in our little um, Scarred for Life WhatsApp group uh, and I watched it on the train into work earlier on today and it is absolutely terrifying and I you know like a lot of the stuff you know that you talk about from this era was kind of accidentally scary but people making that they're going out to petrify kids aren't they there's this not it's not an accident oh yeah do you know what I mean there was abs- there's absolutely no so it wasn't mistaken this was quarter to five I think in the afternoon yes. this was absolutely designed that was the kind of title sequence that you would expect at nine o'clock when i've just gone to bed yeah well it's the way i'm glad you found it terrifying as well it was it was and the, the interesting thing is now and, and i don't think this is a good thing really like you know watching cbb's or kids programs now nothing scary there's no there's no scares in there at all whereas i think and this is something uh, probably a recurrent theme during this podcast series with scarred for life is that you know we grew up with 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 terrifying stuff even you know darth vader massive huge famous film of star wars everyone watched it but you know there's bits in star wars where like they where they de- they destroy that village they they kill everyone in that village and every you know that that's kind of normal stuff that we kind of grew up with so yeah. that element the, the of the two smoking corpses yeah 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 Uncle ben and aunt beru they, yeah. they, they the, the stormtroopers just set them on fire man <laughs> It was like, what? What the hell? Uh, that's a fantastic scare. Thank you very much for that. Um, my my uh, second scar uh, this week is um, Mr. Nosy Bonk, uh, another kids' TV character that oh. terrifies me. Mr. Nosy Bonk, um, hands down, scariest kids' TV character of all time, I'm going to say. Um, uh, and like I said, going, going back earlier on, a, a lot of kids' stuff from this era was unintentionally scary. I genuinely believe this guy was so horrific, they knew what they were doing. Uh, and it was from the kids' TV show Jigsaw, which is innocuous enough with Janet Ellis and all that kind of thing. Kind of a fun knockabout kids' TV show, inquisitive show about science and all that kind of thing and solving problems. But uh, Nosy Bonk was this fella in a dinner jacket. He had one of those suits a concert pianist would perform in, which kind of added gave an added element of terror about him. Polished black shoes and then a big white 
bright distorted face mask with a great big nose and just weird dead holes for eyes and kind of white string for hair and he used to absolutely make me go and like hide behind the couch when he came on it's absolutely terrifying and the other thing that used to scare me about him the most is that it was clearly a mask they they, they didn't make it look like that's nosy bonk's head that was like that guy's yeah. wearing that mask so he had a kind of you wick, see wicker man skin. You can see his skin, you can see his ears and hair underneath it as well. Uh, and it was, again, slightly slowed down, so it felt like it was like a, a fever dream. You know, one of those dreams where you can't get away from something. It was a little bit like that, but um, I, I just remember out of, out of everything of that era, he, he was just absolutely terrifying, was Nosy Bonk. Yeah, we do this... Uh, uh, we often tweet or Facebook message about various TV shows, and one of the ones we talk about is Threads, uh, which is a nuclear war drama, which many people say is the scariest thing ever on TV. And every time we do it, we get somebody going, yeah, but it's, you know, it's no nosy bonk, is it? So <laughs> nosy bonk is, this is, it. is officially more terrifying than nuclear annihilation. He is the most... He is. He it's is official. now. It's official. A, yeah. He is, he is considered a, a horror icon with Jigsaw from Saw and Chucky and Michael Myers. To a certain proportion of our generation, he is now a horror icon, genuinely. <laughs> The thing is, I, would you like to know a story about Nosy Bonk, Andy? Yes, yeah. Because if it helps me deal with my trauma from Nosy Bonk, Steve, that'd be great. It, it will. I, because I wrote the piece about Nosy Bonk in our second book. Uh-huh. You said he was intended to be scary. The weird thing is, it was the complete opposite. The intention was to be a jolly, carefree whimsical children's character. Wow, there's someone <laughs> someone failed the brief on that one, well, that's for sure, didn't they? Listen, it, it was it was a guy it was one of the co hosts of um, Jigsaw, a trained mime called Adrian Headley. He was a lovely guy. He was the man behind the mask. Now the story behind Nosy Bonk, it was his creation. Basically on Adrian Headley's eighth birthday, his dad gave him an incredibly detailed latex horror mask <laughs> as his present then walked out on the family, never saw him again. So Adrian Headley kept on to this mask. It was the last tangible evidence of his dad. So he he slept wearing the mask. Steve, this is terrifying. This is not helping with my trauma (laughs) at all. Well, the punchline will help you. So basically, when Adrian Headley is hired for Jigsaw and pitches the idea of a masked character for one of the sketches every week... He digs out a mask that he bought at the the annual mask festival in Basel in Switzerland, oh, right. which is essentially the nosy bonk mask. Now the BBC props department go no fucking way because it's too phallic. The nose is enormous, so they say we'll make our own version. And in an interview, Adrian Edley said they came back with a version with the nose was about half a foot longer, <laughs> so it's even more phallic. But he was quoted as saying that he was never created as a bogeyman. He was a happy-go-lucky innocent. He was pure, the eternal child. So I don't know if that helps you at all, Andy. There is no way I'm buying that Nosy Bonk was happy-go-lucky. I, I think <laughs> maybe you hit the nail on the head there. Maybe it's just mime. There's something scary about mime, isn't there? Isn't mime scary? Yes. Yes, it is. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's terrifying. It's no one likes mimes. No, no one, one likes, mime. likes mimes. No one likes mime at all, so... 
Uh, thank you for that. Well, a bit of intel there on that particular childhood trauma about Nosybok. Thank you, Steve. Uh, let's very quickly go to another listener's scar. Brian has got in touch. You can get in touch with us uh, at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter. He has sent us a still freeze-frame photo of one of the scariest movies of all time. Something that haunts him to this present day is Danny Glick from Salem's Lot, which is the child hovering up to the window. What's, uh, oh, what's your yeah. take on that, you guys? Is that is that up there in the yes. pantheon of scary stuff? One of the worst things yeah. to see outside Top window. ten. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Petrified me as a kid. I mean, I, I, I don't think I opened my curtains for about a month. <laughs> First time I saw that. Uh, right, Dave, let's have your third scar, please, right, my, on this Scarred for Life podcast. Mine, my third one is very geographically specific. It is uh, Bidston Moss Tip. Now, I, I do realise that most of you, if not all of you, have never been to Bidston Moss Tip. Um, but in the 80s, uh, how could you describe it? It was basically a sort of post-apocalyptic uh, wasteland. It was... The sun had bleached the you know the dirt sort of a very light colour. The, the, the Where dust. in the UK was this? This is uh, it's on Dave. the it's on the Wirral. It's uh, near Liverpool. It's on the Wirral. Bidston Moss Tip, Birkenhead. People come here to find clothes for their families, furniture for their homes, or scrap they can sell. We even found one man getting his food. And um, so, is it close to where you live or lived? It, it's that. yeah, it's it's about maybe a, a ten minute drive away from where I lived. Uh, and what we do is uh, we would we would go down at the weekends and take our rubbish to the tip. Um, the thing was that where I lived, where I still live, uh, they had a shipyard that was you know on the wrong side of the country, on the wrong side of history, and was losing, you know, it was shutting down. There was no work for people. So what you would get is you get an immense amount of poverty in particularly in Birkenhead and the unemployed people would go down to the tip and would sort of mm. perch on top of these mounds of rubbish waiting for anybody to bring in rubbish that they could use or barter or you know or sell and they were called uh, shite hawks uh, and so you'd, you'd <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's it's apparently it dates back to the 19th century British Army. Well, wow. I use that phrase on uh, about football fans uh, as an Evertonian. I use that phrase yeah. about football fans and I didn't know that was the origin of it. Yeah, Dave, I, I think it originally goes wow. back to the British Army in the 19th century, but they called them shite hogs because they were like, like, like they were perched like hawks <laughs> waiting for you to unload your shite <laughs> um, that they would then take. Um and so it's it's it was just Massively, that's Mad Max stuff. It is. That, well, we are, that's it is genuinely terradome. dystopian. Yeah, we, I mean, we are. Yeah. We are yeah. So we often talk about, don't we? Say we often say, you know, people's image of the eighties is all neon and Magnum in his Ferrari. Ours was just yeah, people down the tip nicking your rubbish. It was, it was you know, it was, well, this is it. My memory of Merseyside and Liverpool in the eighties is waste ground. Yeah, and bomb sites that hadn't been cleared yet. And this is the thing. I mean, we grew up in the era of. Boys from the Black Stuff and the various doll dramas. Boys from the Black Stuff was really hard hitting, and it's mm. got some horrible bleak stuff in it. But this is that's a good point, Dave, because they never, from my point of view, they never went far enough. No, because what you've just described is worse than anything. Well, in Boys I from mean, the Black there's, stuff. there's yeah. that like there's that documentary, isn't it? That uh, T Street isn't working. If you look at that, that's on YouTube. T Street isn't working. Oh, yeah, and there's there's a guy in that, and I think he, if you're trying to guess his age, you'd say he's about sixty, and I think he's like thirty something. He's just forty-two. Hor- what was he, he for? Horribly aged before his time, because yeah. just poverty was so grand. But that's it. You know, it's just an awful, awful. T Street in Birkenhead. It was a, an entire street, a long street, where every single person was unemployed, except for one person who had a job in the Dole office. 
Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This this is really interesting actually because uh, this will actually bring me on to my third scar, which I, which which I'll chuck in now because I, we my my family are from Norris Green and we used to go up lived grew up in Devon, but we would go go and stay with our nan and granddad in Hasfield Road, Norris Green on a regular basis and in that era in the 80s in Liverpool I was absolutely terrified we used to be terrified of going up there with like there were so many burglaries and stuff like my nan got burgled yeah. so many times in Liverpool so we we were petrified of burglars getting into the house and all of that kind of thing we were also particularly terrified of the Ogden's tobacco uh, sign that used to smoke the big pipe in the centre of Liverpool that used to smoke at certain points during the day that used to absolutely scare the life out of us but my, my, my nan is uh, was god bless her a kind of like Irish Scouse Catholic uh, very tough religious, you know, Irish Catholic upbringing. So the house was full of uh, Roman Catholic iconography. So uh, oh. all around the house. I don't know if anyone else had like nans or granddads that were like this, but all around the house was uh, glow in the dark um, Virgin Marys or the Passion of the Christ. This eyes would follow you around the room. Uh, cuttings of um, um, like monks' cassocks or saints' cassocks that were in little tiny trinkets that were supposed to bring good luck. Jesus. Everywhere had holy water, left, right, and centre. And it was just that kind of thing added into the Liverpool thing of panicking that someone was trying to get through the window all the time in the 80s. They just used to scare the life out of me. <laughs> Do you know what? I think, I think. Well, I, had, I, didn't have, I didn't have family that had that, but I had a friend whose mum had, not to that extent, but she would have pictures up. Remember the old lenticular pictures? that were kind of, you would sometimes get trading cards that basically when you tilted them, the image changed. Oh, uh, yeah, She had move. a lenticular picture of Christ on the cross and the eyes opened and closed and oh. it put the fucking shit up me. It was horrifying. horrifying. Coupled with my fear of the Turing Shroud, <laughs> yes. which is just one of the most eerie images I've ever seen. I couldn't go in the, the living room. I'd go straight up to his bedroom. <laughs> I think yeah, I think, yeah. My my now as as I mentioned before, she was she was an Irish Catholic, and she she had um, every looking at how she had crucifixes, um, yeah. and I I always wonder. I used to I used to wonder. It's like you know, if if Jesus comes back in the second coming and he sees all these crucifixes everywhere, is that going to be like if JFK came back and everybody had a grassy knoll hanging around the neck? It's just last thing last thing he wants to see, isn't it? Yeah, last absolutely, thing he wants absolutely, to be absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, the, yes, the. Um, Religious iconography is a bit heavy. I mean, there's a, there's a Roman Catholic school by us, and it's you still go in, and it's very oppressively, uh, you know, crucifixion pictures everywhere you look. It's just, it's quite, it's yeah, it's a bit dark. Well, I like like we said earlier on, Nan's very complicit yes. in scaring of children during this entire yeah. era. Uh, Steve, uh, let's wrap up then with your third and final scar this week. Let's do it. This, I'm glad we're wrapping up with this because it's. To this day, the scariest thing I have ever seen. It's another TV choice. It's a public information film um, about rabies. <laughs> it's we, This is the thing. Our books are called Scarred for Life because we call it the Scarred for Life era because the 70s and 80s, more than any other decade, are the decade where people are more inclined to say, oh, God, that TV show scarred me for life. That film scarred me for life. Now, I'm not joking, it traumatised me to the point where, as a 53-year-old man, I haven't been able to watch it all the way through since I was a child. Oh, wow. Because it triggers a phobic reaction in me, a, a visceral phobic reaction, to the extent that I wrote, I wrote both the public information film sections in both of our books, a couple of hundred pages each, except for rabies means death. 
which I had to hand over to Dave because I can watch the first five seconds and I can't get any further. So Dave had to write the entry in the second book for this. But I remember it. I'm going off Dave's synopsis and I can still remember it. It's burnt into my brain. The short version is we see a plane taxiing at a kind of British um, airport and it's about an older woman who tries to smuggle her pet cat um, into customs, coming yep. back into the country. The customs officer stops her, says, if you'd like to come over here, madam, opens the bag, and her little cat's there, and he looks at her, she looks at him. Um, Clive Swift from Keeping Up Appearances is the voiceover guy, who basically says, you know, if you smuggle animals into this country, you could face a, a death. The, the, the symptoms aren't even worth talking about. It's a, a death beyond description. Wow. The outcome of a sentimental impulse could mean a sentence of death for the animal you love and couldn't leave behind, and for you or someone like you, death in a manner that is beyond description. That's kind of intense enough, but the problem with it is that each of these scenes is intercut four or five times, I seem to think, Mm. remember, by grainy, colour, genuine footage of... A rabies victim in his death throes, thrashing about on a bed. A young black guy in a white hospital bed with bandages on his arm, his, his, his belly. His eyes are wide open, staring at the ceiling, and he is thrashing and convulsing. You get split-second cuts all the way through the film, but each cut is punctuated by this electronic, shrill, high-pitched kind of psycho stab. <laughs> So I remember seeing it a couple of times when I was very little and it was another one that had me running out of the room. I, I knew when I saw that plane taxiing on the runway to just bail because it wasn't a fun scare. It was trauma. I couldn't bear it. At, but I'm happy to report before we did the podcast, I tried to watch it again. And for the first time, in 40 odd years I'm, I'm lying I've got five seconds in <laughs> he bailed again I, yeah I can't but I managed to stop myself from throwing my phone across the room well I mean it's, it's got it's that visceral a reaction well obviously you put it in the group for us to have a look at I'm, obviously Dave's seen it before it's the mm-hmm. first time I've watched it and it is absolutely terrifying I think the thing that I found kind of most scary about it is that it's got almost like a, a British hyacinth bouquet type vibe with it with the old lady it's like oh what's she got in a handbag what she's yeah. been smuggling some Murray mints or she's taken someone off the plane <laughs> and it's the cat in there next thing you know you know, interspersed with these horrendous um, clips of, of rabies victims and, and it got me thinking like you know every era has got its great big scare um, you didn't really yeah. see anything about rabies these days. I mean, I know rabies is still a thing, but like obviously in that era, then there was obviously quite a big concern about uh, the, the fear of rabies. Well, that's the know? thing. The 70s and 80s was the big era for it, and it begins when, in earnest, this is what we've got to remember, that there hasn't been a recorded case of rabies in Britain since 1922. Wow. The hysteria started in the tabloids when... Britain joined the co- what was then the common market, the EU. Freedom of movement is introduced. So the, the thinking was that um, British people and kind of people from the continent will be bringing animals over and rabies might make its way to these shores for the first time in decades. It got so bad that certain tabloids would have maps of the British Isles with yeah. kind of Dad's Army style arrows 
pointing to the, the, the path that rabid foxes would make as they charge across the English countryside. But it was, I remember the rabies posters. There was a BBC drama in 1983 called The Mad Death that was so terrifying. It was about a rabies outbreak in Scotland. I didn't get further than the second episode. Oh, wow, Do you remember stray, stray dogs? Another thing you don't get anymore. Stray dogs were everywhere back in the 70s. It was a big 80s. fear, wasn't it, of them and getting into schools yeah. and stuff like that? Yeah, and it was something to be feared. I, talking about that, a stray dog got into our school when I was about 14 when the bell rang and it was afternoon lessons and I was a straggler. This, I think it was a Doberman, it was a big dog anyway. I was petrified. All I remember <laughs> is taking my blazer off and twirling it in its face. I was using every swear word under the sun, F words, B words, C words, because I was petrified of this dog that eventually scarpered. So I go to my lesson to discover that the teacher and the entire class had been watching me and listening to me through the, <laughs> the windows. The and, well, basically the teacher said, you've got a bit of a mouth on you there, Stephen, because I was a very well-behaved <laughs> kid. But, Steve, God, I was... Did, did, yeah. did you chase off the class pet? <laughs> did I what? Chase off the class pet? <laughs> you know, that, that's... They, somebody brought the dog Scare the off the dog. Yeah. The school dog. Yeah. Uh, that's... I'm, I'm interested to know what you guys make of that. Every time I show that public information film, if you want to look at it on YouTube, it's called Rabies Means Death. Mm. Just to make sure that I'm not overreacting. And every time I've shown it to friends of every age, they always say, Jesus Christ, how was that on television? Yeah, I think the fact that it's real footage of mm. of real rabies victims, like you say, in their death throes, is just like, what? How on earth? I mean, that's, that is going to be a recurrent thing with this series. Is like, how on earth did that make it onto TV? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. Well, Dave made a really good point when he wrote about it in the book. That guy had died way before that public information film had made its way to the screens, which actually stopped me in my tracks. I thought, Christ, oh, that's, that's bleak, man. Yeah. That but is they really would, bleak. They would show... Yeah, an actual rabies victim dying to drive the point home. Wow. And public information films did not fuck around in the 70s. No, no they didn't. I, I, and I guess it's, it's left a lasting impression, so they kind of worked. Um, uh, Steve, thank you very much for that. Uh, one other quick uh, listener's scar before we wrap things up for this this kind of first main episode of the Scarred for Life podcast. Ippy says uh, something that scarred her for life is the Doctor Who theme music. Not just the programme, but just oh, the music yeah. itself, which... It's pretty scary for people. I think Doctor Who. I imagine we'll be visiting Doctor Who a fair old bit in yeah. this in this uh, in this yeah, podcast series. So, yeah. I mean, there's some good characters in there. Yes, definitely. That's yeah, including it. That's kind of the gateway drug for kids to get you into scary stuff. Include, yeah, yeah. The it, end. Include, it includes a killer ventriloquist dummy. So yeah, we'll definitely be talking about that again. Hundred uh, percent. Make sure you subscribe. Keep listening because we will definitely get to Doctor Who. Well, listen. That is that's that's all we have got time for this week. As we say normally each week on this podcast, when we get going, we're going to be uh, having a special guest on from the world of TV, film, and pop culture, uh, and they're going to be bringing with them three things that have scarred them for life. And we want to hear yours as well. Tons of different ways to get in touch at Scarred for Life Two on Twitter, or you can drop us an email contact at scarredforlifebooks.com. Uh, Steve, Dave, thank you so much. You've been listening to Scarred for Life. Uh, thank you for joining us. Remember, do have nightmares, and we'll see you with our first guest and their scars next week. <laughs> <laughs>